May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the wake of recent news, the arrest of Jared from Subway and the hacking of the Ashley Madison site, a website devoted to helping married people engage in affairs, in the wake of all that, perhaps this is no time to preach about sex. On the other hand, in a time when Fifty Shades of Grey and all of its sequels, no matter how poorly written, still top the bestseller charts, in a time of Grindr and Tinder apps that advertise themselves as ways to meet people nearby but serve primarily as ways to hook up, in a time when we can swipe left on someone's picture to discard them or swipe right, if interested in a time like this, perhaps it's exactly the right time to preach about sex. Now, it's a bit risky to talk about sex in church, especially from the pulpit. After all, the church has done a pretty lousy job in this regard. Either the church has said way too much prescribing what we may and may not do, enacting puritanical codes, ostracizing and excommunicating and shunning those who do not always color inside the church's lines. Or the church has opted to say way too little, offering no comment as we try to live our lives in an era very, very different from the time in which scripture was written. And yet, here we are, on the one Sunday in our three-year lectionary cycle when we actually read from the Song of Solomon, also known as the Song of Songs. And not only do we today get to hear from the sexiest book in the Bible, we get to hear one of the sexiest parts of the sexiest books in the Bible. Though I should warn you, when I said that to John Thompson this morning, who was going to read the first reading, he said to me, you had better get out more if you think that's the sexiest thing. (laughs) And still, with our imaginations, listening for what lies behind metaphor, arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. And now the winter is past. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth its figs and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Here we see the lover calling to the beloved, calling her out of her room, out into the world that is lush and ripe in the fullness of spring so that they might delight in one another, in God's good creation, in their bodies and the world. 
Here we have just a brief passage from a book that is devoted entirely to celebrating love, the passionate love these two have for one another and the joy they take in one another. The Song of Songs is unusual in the Bible. And just as we in the church are not sure that we actually want to talk about sex, the earliest editors of the Bible were not sure that they even wanted this book in there. After all, it's pretty clear to most commentators that this is a secular love poem. It's similar to love poems found at the, of the same period in Egypt and Syria. It was almost excised from the canon until the great teacher and great mystic Rabbi Akiba said, all scripture is holy, but the song of songs is the holy of holy. From that time then, both Jewish and Christian scholars and preachers have been trying to figure out what to do with it. Both Jews and Christians have interpreted, interpreted it as allegory, with Jews seeing it as being about the love between God and Israel, and Christians interpreting it as love between Christ and his church. In the third century, Origen wrote homilies and a ten-volume commentary about this eight-chapter book. In the Middle Ages, there were more commentaries written about the Song of Songs than any other book in the Hebrew Scriptures. And the great monk Bernard of Clairvaux wrote 86 sermons about this book, and he never caught past the second chapter. But despite all of that work to interpret it, the truth is this poem is about human love. It delights in the passion and love these two feel for one another. It captures the way we imagine that the whole world smiles on us when we are deeply in love. We imagine the flowers bloom for us, the birds sing for us, just as the lover says, the flowers appear, the time of singing has come. The voice of the turtle dove is heard in the land, the fig tree puts forth its figs. Love is blooming. And all is right with the world for these two lovers. Lest we think, however, that the Song of Songs has nothing to say to us, we who perhaps are not in love right now, or maybe in a more mature state of love, or who have lost love, Lest we think that it has nothing to say to us, we who sit in the pews this morning rather than frolicking in the fields, I say there is still much to ponder. For our culture, our culture that too often sells sex and exploits women and children, where women fear violence, and too often we commodify one another, not celebrating the other as beloved, but reducing the other to his or her use for us. Well, our culture has much to learn from this song. For here, unusual for the Bible, the women, woman and the man are equals. Each pursues the other, and it is the woman who speaks most often here. 
And here, physical love, passion, is celebrated. But this is faithful love, a love that professes, my beloved is mine, and I am his. This exuberant, playful love where lovers pursue one another inspired commentators over the centuries to read this story into and alongside our sacred texts. Some have argued that this is a reversal of Eve's punishment when God told her, your desire shall be for your husband and he will rule over you. Because here, it is the man who praises and desires his beloved. Listen to these beautiful words. How graceful are your feet, your rounded thighs are like jewels. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled by lilies. Your neck is like an ivory tower, your kisses like the best wine. And to these praises, the beloved woman declares, I am beloved and his desire is for me. And in this garden, there are no snakes or thorns, only blooming flowers and fragrant figs. Others have seen the Song of Songs as a reversal of the many images of Israel as an unfaithful spouse to God, which litters the Hebrew scriptures. For here we read a love story between two people that can be interpreted as our relationship with God. We are no longer unfaithful, but passionately in love. Clearly this is a rich book, a song filled with beautiful poetry, capturing passionate physical love, a deep love that can be trusted, a desire between two people who have pledged themselves to one another. And that love is understood as unfolding in the beauty of God's creation. All of the images are vineyards and fields bursting forth with life, a landscape renewed in spring, lush and blooming and alive. Here we see people glorying in God's creation and we can imagine God reveling in the joy that they find there, the joy between two people that can be interpreted as our relationship with God. We can see Lovers enjoying their bodies, frolicking in the luxuriousness of creation, and surely God delights in their and in our joy, just as a great cook revels while watching others enjoy the meal made for them. So just what are we to glean then from this Song of Songs? What does this secular love poem have for we people in the pews other than a little surprise that sex has shown up on Sunday in church? Well, I think it shares the deep, the very deep message that creation is good. Creation is good all of it, our beautiful world, our beautiful bodies, whether they're young 
or they're old, whether they're slim or stout, whether they're gay or straight or bi, cis or trans, they're good. Human love is good. And God delights in God's good creation and wants us to delight as well. God does not call most of us to be celibate and calls none of us to shame, but calls all of us to be joyfully, passionately loving and faithful. I think, too, that we can see in the centuries of interpretations of this poem as an allegory for the love God has for us as more evidence that we can know and love God through creation and through the things of this world. We can know God through art and music and one another because all is sacred all created by God. We can know God even in those things that are not officially set aside as holy, even love poems, even lovers, who show us the depth and passion with which we are to love one another and the depth and passion with which God loves us. At the end of his life, while in prison, awaiting death, the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer turned to the Song of Songs and found great comfort there. He saw in it evidence of the goodness of God's creation and of God's passionate love for us. He later wrote to a friend, nothing calamitous can happen. Nothing calamitous can happen when we're loved by such an ardent, passionate, sensual love that is portrayed here. Love is good. Faithful, passionate sex is good. Creation is good and our faithful, good God loves us and created us for love. As the lover wrote, or is it God, at the end of the poem, set me as a seal upon your heart. Set me as a seal upon your heart, for love is as strong as death, passion fierce as the grave. Many waters cannot quench love, and neither can floods drown it. Amen.